next time, next time. It's not often. Um, I feel imposter syndrome, um, not just from being surrounded by, you know, wonderful people, but that last talk was phenomenal. Um, anyway, congratulations. It blew my head off. What I loved, there was a couple of things that I loved about that. First of all, um, the J.K. Rowling quote. You know, we're going to talk about storytelling, which is perhaps why, you know, can storytelling really change the world? Maybe. Um, and how do we do that? And how do we encourage and inspire leaders, especially reluctant ones? But um, J.K. Rowling's really interesting when you push her about how to write a story. Because, you know, usually when you look at the art of storytelling or the science of how you write something like the Harry Potter franchise, they explain what you do or why you do it. And she's really big because business does the same. Here's all the things that we do. Here's all the what's, you know. And then sometimes we go into the why and our purpose. And we'll look at that a little bit in a second. Um, J.K. Rowling never says that. She says, you just want to listen to a story to figure out a big how. That's it. Storytellers want to explain the how, the really, really big how. Because often we know the why and we know the what. We know roughly where it's going to end. You don't watch James Bond, for example, you know, to know his whys. How is he going to do it? Um, the other point, Joe, you mentioned about, you know, well, not everyone can change the world. I'm not sure I agree. There's a quote, um, and it's cheesy, forgive me. Um, we're not even started yet. This could go long. <laughs> um, Mother Teresa said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. You know, I'm really fortunate. Um, I lead a very big company. Um, it's, a, it's a practice that we're building for the first time. We're 110 years old. I describe us as a 110-year-old startup. We've got 330,000 people that I need to create communications leadership for to help them change the world whether it's human trafficking un energy crisis whatever the thing is but you know everyone's got a different world right and it's just kind of acknowledging what our world is and what is our capacity to change that so um anyway i love that i think what we'll do here is we'll cover we'll, we'll bounce around a little bit if that's okay i've got no slides um i'm changing quite a lot within what is this huge company. And we thought it might be interesting just to kind of give you a look behind the scenes on the way that we're doing. Um, I treat IBM very much like public sector. In fact, I've spent a lot of work with, with the NHS. You know, we're doing all the test and trace stuff. My team helped to position all of that in the beginning, but it's like, you know, political strategy half the time versus, you know, public sector, public service, even though I'm working in the corporate world. So I thought we'd show you some of it and then we'll try and leave Time for Q&A, if that's okay. And some of it will cover winning hearts and minds. Some of it will talk about how do we conquer people? Because, you know, not every leader does want to change the world. Some people have different agendas. Some people have got big egos and personalities. We don't always agree with what's going on. And policies and regulations. And sometimes, you know, this is just part of the role. This is what we do. 20 steps forward and 18 back, you know, sometimes. So we're going to cover a little bit about mental health. We're going to talk a little bit about classical Greek. I thought we'd talk about the secret to great communications. How do you tell a really compelling story that changes the world? I'll tell you how I think that we do it. I'm going to look at um, why do communications professionals and creatives fail? What's the biggest reason for failure and what's the biggest challenge that we're facing in 2021? So we'll bounce around a little bit and I, I hope it's okay because um, I didn't want to do an emotional talk, Joe, because you made me cry last time. Were, were you any of you guys here for the last time that I presented in 2018? I bawled my eyes out on stage in front of you guys. There was like four or 500 people in the room. I was telling the story of my twins, you know, who are now awesome. Um, I haven't got a picture, but I can show you my mouse map. My identical twin girls. Their lives were saved by Chelsea Westminster and IBM's AI, Watson. 
originally artificial intelligence and NICU helping the physicians make decisions in 24 hours. You know, the, the show on Netflix, Surgeon's Cut, you know, Kipras Nicolades, he was our surgeon. We had surgery to get rid of one of our twins, given 0% chance of survival for both. So we're a research project. Anyway, they, against all the odds, they're, they're here, they're amazing. They're being a pain in the ass. They're downstairs homeschooling. <laughs> and they are, they're gorgeous, wonderful bundles of joy. So I've just got the most love for, um, for what you guys do. Um, and I'm driven by all sorts of different agendas as well. So very mixed feelings um, with what we're trying to do here. So first of all, I thought, you know, we're kind of the frontline comms professionals. And I was thinking that often people look at some of the stuff that we do as if it's a soft skill you know, storytelling, creativity, art. That's what we do is art. We create art a lot of the time. We've got to create commercial art, but we've got to create some type of a story that engages people that drives an emotion, right? We've got to tell stories that make people feel something and hopefully when they feel something, they act and they do things differently. But it's often described as a soft skill. I think it's a really, really hard skill to do what we do. I think it's incredibly hard. I was trying to think about what it was like and one analogy I used to use was DJs. I love electronic dance music. You know, we're like DJs. We're trying to remix all of these things that are around us. And we're trying to take it out to a new audience in a slightly different way. And sometimes we repackage it differently. And, you know, it's a whole new thing. And then I thought, well, you know, some DJs are really creative as well. Maybe we're not actually all doing the creative, the original piece. So then to think about people like Ben Zander, the conductor, you know, the Boston Symphony. And I think about all the really smart people that we're surrounded by. We've got to get them to play the right tune, hopefully at the right time, in the right tempo, in the right venue and area, and just trying to get all of these amazing brains to line up so that collectively we create art, we create a symphony, we create wonderful things. So I thought conductors, I thought cat herders, flight controls. I think, in fact, I think last time somebody said, you're a blind man in a dark room searching for a black cat that isn't there. Pretty sure that was the NHS session that we did a couple of years ago. Here's a new one for you. Here is a new one. Someone said recently, doing this job is like playing chess on a board made of water and all the pieces are made of smoke. Now, what does that even mean? I have no idea what that means at all. Anyway, our jobs are really, really hard. I've been running around a lot trying to figure out why our jobs are so hard. And a couple of months after I actually gave that presentation to you guys, I was diagnosed with ADHD. I, I realized very quickly why my job was so hard. And I had no idea, right? I'm 48 now. I had no idea. I'm terrible at admin. You know, I'm a nightmare to manage. Now, all of a sudden, I can understand why my brain works in the way that it does and why in some areas it's a superpower, but I'm terrible at other things. You know, I've been misdiagnosed many times with depression, all kinds of things because of the way that you get diagnosed for ADHD. It's getting undiagnosed of everything else. But when you realize it, it's a superpower. So I'm thinking about the leaders. It's emotionally exhausting as well, isn't it? Because like random, you know, squirrel, and I'm off. I may not stay here for the next 20 minutes. I may be gone. Um, you try and think about the leaders that we're talking to. A bunch of you guys in this room will have it and not realize it. And if you knew it, it would change everything about the way that you engage with your family, leaders around you, your team the professionals, the way that you do campaigns. It's about 8% of high-performing professionals. And the more creative you are, the higher the chances you have of having ADHD, you know, at a level on the spectrum. Comedians, usually up to about 80%. 
But you think about this mindset of the leaders, like Sammy was just talking about, we've got loads of problems around at the moment, not just the fact that their brains are wired in a different way. Leaders make irrational decisions. They just do, right? We survey more CEOs than any company in the world. We found out two things this last time we did the survey. Four out of five executives currently feel overwhelmed and underprepared for the challenges their organization is facing over the next two years. They have no idea what to do, who to trust, what to build, technology to use. And then when you look at the decisions that they make, what the research seems to be showing is that 75% of major strategic decisions are made with people's heart or their gut. Irrational decisions that often go against the data. Where should I invest? Should I have a bigger team? Should I have a bigger headcount? You know, do I believe the story that you've got and is it going to drive action somewhere else? It's a massive problem. Then you think about levels of trust, lowest level of trust we've ever seen in the world. You know, there's a Edelman does a trust barometer every single year. 33,000 professionals like us in 28 countries. They're all surveyed about why the world is changing. We know that trust is declining. We know that social media doesn't work anymore at all, especially not in the way that it used to. Most of it's private. It's a separate conversation. You start looking at things like 81% of professionals are scared of losing their jobs. And between 55 and 60 are scared about losing their jobs to automation. You know, NHS is investing heavily in some of this stuff at the moment. So I started trying to dig down a little bit more. It turns out that there's a thing called EASD. Didn't even know this was real. Executive Attention Span Disorder. Has anyone heard of it? Has anyone ever heard of that before? It's an actual thing. I had no idea. Executive attention span disorder. The average executive's attention spans about six minutes. That's why TED Talks are 18 minutes. It's three acts of six minutes. Um, but then when you actually break down on a specific topic, it's roughly about 75 seconds. Most people's attention span goes in fluctuations of about six seconds. But here's the thing. This research from MIT showed that the average executive, God knows how they counted it, it's MIT, so we kind of believe it. They've got a very fancy methodology behind it. 70,000 executives, um, 70,000 thoughts a day. So they have 70,000 thoughts a day, 90% were the same as yesterday, and 80% are negative. These are often the leaders that we're either trying to engage or we're trying to help do their job better. I started having a look, why are some of these professionals not successful? You know what the number one reason was that we found out? Self-esteem. You know, the just incredibly low levels of self-esteem was the number one reason why most, especially creative professionals, were not successful. So I started looking at our comms, all of the creative work that we do. And please don't tweet this. I know that this is not strictly private, but we do about 37,000 pieces of content a year. About 85% of it has less than 100 views, and about 80% of that is only viewed by the people who created it. It's a nightmare. We don't have content problem. We have a communication problem. We have a network problem of how do we share stories, especially at scale. So I started having a look. I used to work at Facebook and we used to look at viral content about why does a great piece of content land actually does six things. A great story does six things. It's almost evenly split left brain and right brain. I know it's not left and right, limbic and neocortex, but you, you know what I'm talking about. So the left side of the brain, we inform, we educate and we solve a problem. The right side of the brain, we inspire, we entertain, and we challenge with a unique point of view. Now, the challenge is that the way that we tell most of our stories, and you know, I've done a lot of work with NHS and looked at a lot of Matt's work, and I work with political speechwriters a fair bit, they inform, they educate, they try and solve a problem. That reaches a part of the brain, 
you know, that loosely is the neocortex that processes all of our words and language, has no capacity whatsoever for decision-making. That's not the part of the brain that does decision-making. Decision-making is driven by emotions, hormones, oxytocin, right? Endorphins, dopamine. So when you tell a story that's really human, you know, like Sammy just talked, like the story about my twins last time, we inspire, we excite, we engage, we entertain, we challenge with a unique point of view. Now, IBM, it turns out most of our content is on the left side, which is why it's not landing. But if you go too far to the right and it's all creative, there's not enough economic value to try and drive change. So I started trying to take this down and having a look at how it works because it seems to me like the, the mindset is people either say you've got grassroots movements or you've got the top down. We influence senior leadership or we drive a movement, you know, or to quote Hamilton, we turn a moment into a movement, right? You know, I'm kind of looking at the top down is almost this idea of anxiety and stress that executives are currently feeling. And in that anxiety and stress, we come in to try and solve a problem. And we ask you one simple question. Management consultants do this all the time. What keeps you up at night? As if that decision is going to drive, you know, loyalty and all sorts of other things to bring about systemic change. It doesn't work like that at all. You know, I work with the UN. I'm part of Al Gore's climate reality leadership team and work with Stop the Traffic and Human Traffic. That's not how the brain works. Whereas actually, when you look at it with what gets you out of bed in the morning, it's a completely different discussion. What inspires you? What excites you? You know, I think on the, on the top level, we talk about changing things from the boardroom down. I'm reminded of um, economists like Rudy Dornbush. Dornbush's law. You may be familiar with it, the law of tipping points, hockey stick moments. When people say we're at an inflection point, this is often what they mean. Things always take longer to happen than you think they will, but then they happen faster than you ever thought they could. You get this accelerated curve, like hype cycles, law of diffusion of innovation. But then I'm also thinking about, you know, some of the stuff Joe and Sammy were talking about with Greta, you know, a kid with no influence whatsoever sits outside the Swedish parliament in August 2018, you know, with literally no influence and no cameras and starts a movement, goes on to be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. She sat there saying, well, no one's too small to make a difference. It's a great quote. don't know that we believe it all the time, but somewhere is the truth between that. And the, 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 the common theme that I found is something at IBM, when we try and bring about change from the bottom up and the top down is the three and a half percent rule. Has anyone heard of it? Any hands? Check it out. It's really interesting to have a look at. It's um, Erica Chenoweth. She's a teaching professor at Harvard Business School. Three and a half percent rule is basically the rule about how movements start. She's studied all the way back, nonviolent civil disobedience, whether it's Me Too movement, whether it's Black Lives Matter, suffragette, civil rights, you know, you go all the way back to women's vote. Roughly, data seems to show three and a half percent of any given group brings about change in the rest of the group. I'm certainly finding that true at IBM. Organizations like Extinction Rebellion, for all of their faults, of which there are many, used to be a fan, not so much anymore. They're built on the 3.5% rule, but that's how they got scaled. So I think about IBM, I don't think of the 330,000 people because that overwhelms me and my ADHD brain. I can't, I can't cope with that. But I think, okay, who are the 3.5% and then who are the 3.5% of those? It's like the opposite of a network effect that Facebook uses. You know, the average person's got 140 friends. If they share 19,600, if they share in a perfect world, 2.7 million, it's the same thing, right? I was looking at NHS, you got 1.3 million employees, 
roughly, right? When you add up, you know, hospitals, community health service staff, what's three and a half percent of that? 45,000, 45 and a half thou? What's three and a half percent of those? 1600. Okay, now we're having an interesting discussion. Who are the 1600 that we could genuinely bring about change in the organization with a new mindset? So we've started trying to explore this with ways of trying to tell stories to influence those three and a half percent to change. Um, someone could put in the chat how much time we've got left. Is it 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? 10 minutes. So here's how we're trying to do it. We're looking at things like Aristotle's poetics, right? It's, this is the way that movies are written. It's the way that JK Rowling writes. It's the way that, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote Hamilton, three act structure. Three act structures do three things really well. It's a basic hero's journey, you know, with conflicts and villains and obstacles and intention. And hopefully the hero is going to be transformed for the better with peaks and troughs. Um, if you go on my LinkedIn, you'll see all of my very strange little mind maps. I dissect stories and speeches about how they work. But they basically do three things. And great communicators and great speakers and people who start movements do these three things really well. Act one, you excite. Act two, we disturb. Act three, we assure. So I'm going to tell you something really exciting, but here's why everything's going to crap. But then here's why everything could be amazing with this new world. You know, it's a basic three-act structure. There's lots of complexities within that. So first of all, we start looking at that. I'm teaching people at IBM at scale to try and tell a three-act structure of a story because IBM doesn't do that. We are not a good storytelling company. Then we start teaching them, and forgive me, this sounds really cheesy, but political speech writing. I bring in people from the West Wing administration, from, the, from actually the Obama administration. We look at Aristotle's rhetoric, great speakers, of which I won't make political statements, but there's not that many of them around at the moment. But a great political talk, there's three things, pathos, logos, and ethos. Classical Greek, right? Pathos, it's got loads of emotion and values. Logos, it establishes reason and proof with the science and the evidence ethos, what you bring as an individual to make you special, ethos, credibility, and trust. But in the commercial world, you need one more thing that was never usually linked to a great speech. If you wanna drive a movement, you need something else called Kairos. It's another great word you might wanna Google if you're interested in this stuff. Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, a supreme moment at which one must act no matter how implausible or inconvenient no matter what, even if you're not in a competitive environment, this is why you must act today to bring about change. So then we look at things like hormones, we look at body language, we could do all of this in a separate session for fun. Your tone is five times more valuable than your actual words. When people engage with you, only 8% is your actual words, and yet we get so hung up on the words and the numbers. It's body language, how you dress, what's behind you, you know, all of the other stuff that goes with it. So Here's the best advice that I would give to you that I'm trying to share with, with my teams at IBM. I thought, okay, well, we want to drive change. Some of them are reluctant. We want to try and inspire people to get out of bed. How do we do that? First, how do we tell that story? I thought, I'm going to go to the best storyteller that I know. It's a guy called Tom Friedman from the New York Times. He's the top journalist that they've ever had in the history of the paper. He's got three Pulitzer Prizes. More engagement than any journalist that they've ever had. He's not an investigative journalist. He's an opinion writer. He's a thought leader, so he gives his personal point of view. You may like it, you may not, but he's going to, you know, he's going to drive engagement. That's for sure because he's telling a great story. I worked with him in Minneapolis not long ago, and I said, "Tom, how do you tell great stories? And also, how can I give advice to other people? What's your secret?" 
as a journalist. He said, I'm not a journalist. I'm in the heating and lighting business. I don't understand. What do you mean? He says, all I do is shed light on things. I simplify complexity. I illuminate them using language that makes it accessible to anybody. So I'm in a lighting business. So people think, oh, I never thought about it like that. That's amazing. And you start rephrasing things with the language of a high school student, not IBM languages often age 46 of a, an MBA student. Then you start looking at, you know, on the, <laughs> this is a bit embarrassing. Do, do you guys want to see my twins who have been, they're trying to break into my room. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Okay, this is Petra, who is currently dressed as a, what are you dressed as? Unicorn. You're a unicorn. And how old are you? Four. Oh my God, sorry. Petra's four. And Tills, Tills, come up here. Can you come and say hello to everybody? <laughs> this is working from home, isn't it? Look, you're going to wave. What are you dressed as today? A lion. You're a lion because she's been brave. <laughs> right. Go, on, go, on. go on, girls. I have no idea what I was about to say. <laughs> Something about the heating and lighting business. Um, all right, see you later, love you. Right, so he's in the lighting business. <laughs> the other side of it is I'm in the heating business. I wanna provoke a response. And I'm gonna provoke a response by poking something that's very sensitive, right? Because in poking that response at an extreme emotion, usually humiliation or dignity, I'm gonna provoke a reaction. And he says, that's all I do. You know, I celebrate dignity, I speak out against humiliation. So the best piece of advice, yeah, Caroline wants one of those outfits. <laughs> the best piece of advice I could give you as we look into all of this stuff, I'd love to do a separate session privately if you'd like to go into the details. There's a concept that we teach at IBM called Aikigai. And it's helping people make sense, not just of their mental health, but how they bring their true self to work in order to really make a difference. Because I believe we build a business, change the world and have fun. We do all three of those things at the same time, not in equal measure, not always dressed as a unicorn. Um, but Aikigai, you can go and Google it and have a look. It's the Japanese process of what do you love? What are you good at? What does the world need? What do you get paid for? Four buckets. You've probably seen it on social media. Now, if you think about it, your personal life is often what do I love and what does the world really need is what I'm passionate about. For me, it used to be climate, human trafficking, desperately trying to make a difference. But my job over here what I was good at and got paid for was something entirely different. We now create an environment at IBM where we encourage people to figure out how to get all four of those buckets to overlap as quickly as possible. Because your guy is supposedly your reason for being your purpose, your sense of belonging. It's not actually what it means in Japanese. It's all about little tiny improvements, how you engage with your family, make your tea, tend to your garden. But the concept is true of guy. So how do we help people do that? bring their personal and professional lives together so that they can, you know, bring about change in organizations like ours. Um, we teach them to have one sentence. It's a really simple sentence. It's super hard to fill in. Two, so that. I want to do this, two, blank, so that, blank, this happens. For me, this is my favorite thing in the world, <laughs> chatting to you guys. This, I love this, it's not actually part of my job, but I just want to inspire other people to do what inspires them so that together we can change our world. That's my sentence that drives everything I do, my contribution and my impact. If everybody in your team had that one sentence, 
which by the way, consultants like Simon Sinek charge about $75,000 for a workshop just to help you write that one sentence. <laughs> you know, it's a big deal. And then as we start going through our organizations when it's 20 sets forward and 18 back and we're getting a lot of no's, I'm kind of reminded of the American poet, Wallace Stevens, after the final no comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. Amen. I really love you guys. Thank you so much. That was a little bit all over the place. I appreciate your time so much. Um, I think we've got time for some questions. Um, yes, we do. Are we good, Joe? Yeah, we did. I mean, amazing as always. And I can't believe my twins chat, coming in. The chat box going. I think they stole the show in the end. So that was that was beautiful. I can't compete with that. The, no, you really can't. You really can't. A lot of love for your office as well there, Jeremy. But overall, a lot of love for you and, and the inspiration that you've, you've given us. We have got time for questions. If there are any questions that, that want to come in, there's just a lot of brilliant compliments coming through. So please do have a look at these. I've got a, a question just before we get into other people's thoughts. And I just wanted to go back to the point you made right at the beginning around self-esteem. And it's interesting because Sammy kind of made the point right at the beginning of her talk around imposter syndrome and, and the sense of, and you know the lack of self-esteem and I think all of us that, that are non-clinical over the last 12 months have thought we're not doing enough as leaders and it's what kind of I don't know how long that's a difficult question but what advice could you give for trying to build up your own self-esteem and trying to think about yourself in a more positive light to give yourself more confidence I think it's something that leaders also need to do um, because here's the thing if I take a company like ours and I don't mean to beat us up it's easy to poke fun at IBM because of course we've got a lot of baggage right you know what that feels like um it's easy to come out with like a framework of here's what you must do so we might look at say our share of voice in one market that's not big enough well we need more thought leaders you guys are paid a fortune you need to be out here trying to influence people win hearts and minds conquer people you know be posting blogging and we'll, we'll do these frameworks and teach people what to do and then you've got to write the thing and the white paper and the blog and the tweet I've stopped doing that. And I've said, we've got to stop telling people what to do because I'm noticing that in some of my leadership sessions, we've got massive introverts, people that just hate seeing their face on camera, people that really struggle with this little thing, you know, people that don't want to hear their voice. So instead, I just turn that on its head and say, how can we help you find your voice in a platform that's going to fit your personality style? And what I'm finding is that some people are writing books Somebody wants to do a TikTok channel. Someone wants to register a patent. Somebody else wants to um, author some research. We've got some video shows that are being launched. Someone's creating a leadership program that we've never had before. And we've kind of allowed people the creativity to do anything that they want. And then somehow figure out through Aikigai and various other models that we use, but then how there's economic value that we can justify back to the business. Because, you know, we're not charity. We're not a nonprofit. We've got to show the economic value in what we do. But I make sure that we have commercial metrics attached to our creativity. Historically, creativity doesn't do that. You know, been in marketing 20 years. Awareness, preference, consideration, reach, engagement. Most of those metrics are BS. They don't mean anything. We can manipulate them all day long. They don't have credibility in the boardroom. So I'm trying to help people find their own voice and their own platform with a metric that actually has some value behind it that helps them allow to do more of what they should be doing. Yeah. And usually the job they join for is not the job they should be doing either. That process usually means somebody's moving a team. Managers hate that, but it's the best thing because it would have just end up losing them. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. We've had a few questions in about the, the, what was that key sentence? What's the one sentence? 
Oh, so it's, it's three words. It's really easy. I mean, if you search Simon Sinek, um, he's just a gorgeous guy. He did a really famous TED talk years ago called The Golden Circle. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Caroline's going, the, the big quote that he said in his talk was that the goal in business is not to sell to people who need what you have. It's to work with people who believe what you believe. And out of that belief system, he created things like finding your why as a workshop, which is where this came from. So it's two, so that. So what do you want to do? What's my contribution to? I want to do this. And it should only be about 10 words long. So that this happens. Exactly. Ellis has got the book. It's amazing. Well, the book talks about the limbic brain and the neocortex, doesn't it? How we make decisions. Brilliant. Yeah. And you know the thing, here's some, uh, maybe somebody wants to pick up on this. This is a brilliant piece of research that's never been done. When I spoke to Simon, I actually, I don't mean to name drop um, a little bit. Tom Friedman and Al Gore, we were having the conversation about why are people not acting quickly enough when you talk about activism and evangelism. And there was something called hope budgets. Never heard of it before. We were talking about apocalypse fatigue, you know, like the Mayo Jeans in France talk about you're worried about the end of the world. We're worried about the end of the month. <laughs> I just want to pay my bills, right? Short-term, long-term thinking, which is more Simon Sinek, finite game, infinite game. And, um, and anyway, so we're, we're trying to talk about, um, why, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, hope budgets. Every single individual has a finite amount of hope. Everybody does. We had a finite amount of hope with our twins, given 0% chance of survival. The more you learn about something, the more that hope gets eroded and the more pissed off you get and the more angry you get. And the more anger you get and the more that hope is eroded, the higher the chances of someone doing something to act because they, this where Kairos comes in. So you're going to march, you're going to give money, you're going to set up a campaign, you're going to go and do that run, you're going to start the foundation or whatever. Here's the problem. If you erode too much of that hope budget, almost immediately people switch off could become overwhelmed and they do nothing. And how quickly you go from being the most engaged person in the world to actually, what, what can I do? I'm just one person, I give up. You know, how can I stop climate change? You know, when you should be in a boardroom of Shell and BP or wherever else campaigning. Um, hope budgets, there's something really powerful in that. Love that, thank you very much. But uh, kind of a practical question, any more books? You mentioned Simon Sinek, any more books that you recommend around any of this sort of stuff? You think we should all oh my gosh, there's, there's millions. If you go back on my LinkedIn, I did a post at Christmas. I think it was either like, just before like the 29th, 30th of December or something, I posted all of my favorite storytelling books about the science and the art of storytelling. There's absolutely too many to mention because everyone's going to be turned on by, you know, a different book. I'm reading a lot of poetry at the moment to try and switch my brain off. <laughs> um, but if you go back on that list, there's about 20 books that I think are the best, like the top 20 books on storytelling. And then just go and search the back cover and, and Google some reviews to see which one's going to resonate with you. Personally, anything by Nancy Duarte, D-U-A-R-T-E, or anything by Carmine Gallo, G-A-L-L-O, is all this type of stuff that we're yeah. talking about. Of course, Simon Sinek, Infinite Game is a brilliant book, but um, I study a lot of speeches because that's a big part of my job. Um, anyway. Love that. People saying, write a book. You should write a book there in the chat. I'm actually so writing that's... two at the moment, but we can't there we talk go. about them yet. <laughs> there we go. We'll come back to you when you've, you've got them ready to go. Uh, we've got a couple more minutes of your time, so we, we will make the most of it. 
Sure. You, you've mentioned those people and, and that have inspired you, books that inspire you. You've got some really inspirational people in your background there. Where do you go for like your inspiration, your CPD, your kind of thing to keep you learning and developing? How do you find that? And, and where would you advise other people to look for it? Um, I've been on um, masterclass.com every single day since the date landed four years ago. I was an investor originally, but masterclass.com is the best by a million miles learning environment. 10 minute videos, anything that you want to learn on there. Samuel L. Jackson will teach you how to act. Aaron Sorkin will teach you how to write a script, right? You know, someone else is going to teach you about the art of performance. Now you look at them as if they're creative pursuits, right? Like it's how to write a book by Malcolm Gladwell. Or Neil Gaiman did a brilliant session on storytelling. Um, you know, there's just, there's, anyway, there's so many phenomenal people on that. But I look at it through the lens of, you know, this isn't how Aaron Sorkin wrote The West Wing. This is how to teach other people to tell a really compelling story in 50 minutes. So how do you write a screenplay? You know, you know, when I'm listening to somebody like Robin, who was one of the anchors on uh, American, you know, Good Morning America, she's teaching how to engage an audience with a little webcam. She's not actually teaching you how to be a TV presenter. So masterclass.com is amazing. On a personal note, um, I change my background all the time because it's these are just the people that inspire me at any one moment. I don't know if you can see who they are. Um, I've got Noel Gallagher just because I'm from Manchester and he's a badass. And he needs to remind me that we need a bit of swagger. Another mank in the house, another mank in the house. There we go. <laughs> um, Amanda Gorman, obviously, because she's amazing. The inaugural poet, Erin Sorkin, Misty Copeland, the ballet dancer. Um, we've got Shonda Rhimes, August Wilson, probably the best American playwright, JFK. I'm working with Jane Goodall at the moment, J.D. Salinger and Kamala Harris. So I kind of rotate depending upon who it is I'm writing about. Or, or I do guest lecturing at Georgetown University, so it's usually linked to that. And I'm allowed to have a political agenda, which is why I've got Obama, Bruce and Diana over here as well. And Americans are not allowed that. So I love it. <laughs> why not? I've got to say, you're going so, so well. And then you started in the chat. Liam is better than Noel, according to Charlie. So <laughs> there we go. You started it off. Um, and Linda's there about the people from Manchester. All the best people are from Manchester. Maybe, maybe. Caroline, have you got any final questions for, for Jeremy? Or any final thoughts or comments on any of this? No, that was fantastic, Jeremy. Thank you. And it was it was a really wonderful way to end. And, and I, I just loved it. And this business about going out and shedding some light, creating work where you can be true to yourself. And I think for us as leaders, creating work, work opportunities for other people to be true to themselves as well. And I love that idea. I think there's so much in there that you said that that gives us food for thought and also some practical challenge you know how do we get kind of go out and do something a little bit differently after listening to you so thank you yeah if I think of some of that stuff and then I think about the stuff that Sammy was talking about just before as well there's a 10 word sentence it's like my favorite quote in the entire world it's actually from from Obama he says you can change the world just by sharing your story not a gorgeous quote that's what we need to encourage to, to ourselves and to the people around us we can change the world by sharing our story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeremy. That was Thank wonderful. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. That was absolutely brilliant. And thank